Have you ever seen those home renovation shows on HGTV or some of those other channels? Those are shows I like to pretend that I don't like. Um, and so I'll sit as they're on in the room with my book. Um, and kind of as the show continues to go on, I haven't read very far and I keep making comments about what has or hasn't happened. Um, but there's something that's deeply and oddly satisfying about watching those, um, especially the ones where they take something that's old and ruined and slowly restore it and put it back together. One of my favorite ones was one where they bought a house that was for only a couple thousand dollars because it was so ruined. I mean, no one had lived there in years. It looked like you could have just walked up and pushed it over if you gave it a really good shove. Um, but by the end of it, it had been restored and looked brand new and was probably even better than it had been ever before. And I think our enjoyment of these things isn't just because we like houses, but that we really like to see old things be made new. Um, that there's something even subconsciously in us that longs to watch things be restored. That wants the world restored and that wants our souls and us restored as well. And the best person at restoration, it's not, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines. It's not the mother-daughter team from Good Bones or whatever other shows that there are. I don't know all of them yet. I'll know them after Christmas. I'll, I'll report back. But the best person at restoration is Jesus. Jesus is the king of restoration. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're continuing our Advent series on the coming king. And we're going to be looking and talking about these prophecies in Isaiah 60, 61, and 62 that speak about what kind of king Jesus would be. That, no, hey, celebrate. Jesus is born. Christ the Lord is born. Well, what does that mean? Who is the Lord? What is he like? Why are we celebrating? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And what we're going to see this morning is one of the things that they expected about Jesus is that he would be a king who restored. And we're going to look at what that means. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 61 um, and stand as you are able and we are going to read from God's word this morning. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified." They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of a dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples, and all who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the offspring the Lord has blessed." I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exude in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would open up your word to us this morning, that it would be made clear. Lord, we don't have time to, to discuss or figure out everything that's going on in this passage, but would you reveal what this says about Jesus, how you are the king of restoration, and would you help us be restored, and would you come restore our world? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to talk this morning about the gospel, ruins, and results. Those are kind of our three things. It could be three R's, but I'm not that Baptist, um, despite my heritage. But point one, we're going to talk about the gospel first. And so the first point is that the gospel is good news of restoration. The gospel is good news of restoration. You probably know that's what the gospel means. It simply is good news. But what is the good news? The good news is that Jesus has come to restore He's come to restore things. He's come for many things, but this is part of it. This is part of what the gospel is about. And these verses in the beginning are about the ministry of Jesus. We see in verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. The anointed one is someone who is a figure that pops up kind of over and over in Isaiah. If you remember as our study on Wednesday nights, we kind of went through it for a while. Um, that almost assuredly seems to be Jesus. In almost every instance, but particularly here, Jesus was anointed in a way quite unlike anyone else. Not just because he was a really awesome guy, but because he was God. Fully God and fully man. And when Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and was upon him. This chapter, I don't know how it can refer to anybody other than Jesus who can fulfill this. And Jesus came to bring the good news. He came to bring the gospel. He announces himself what he has come for. To bring good news to the poor. And when Jesus himself, when he first started his ministry in the book of Luke, he announced it with this passage. He started to read from it. In his hometown of Nazareth, when it was the day to go to the synagogue, he went and it was his time to read. Now how did that happen? How did it work out that he happened to be reading that day? Well, he's God. God can work all through all things. And he goes up to read the scriptures and someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah. They didn't have the whole Bible in their day, especially not all in one big book. They had scrolls. So he takes the scroll of Isaiah, and he unrolls it, and he keeps going. This is 60. It's at the end of the scroll. So he scrolls and scrolls and scrolls for a while, and he comes to Isaiah 61, and then he stops. He says, here's where I'm reading. And he reads it. He reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops, he rolls it up, he sits down, and then he says, Today, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. Because this is me. I'm doing this right now. I came to proclaim the good news, and it has just been proclaimed in your midst. And so he read this, these beautiful verses of good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound. He came to bring and preach the gospel of restoration. You notice each of these verses who Jesus is speaking to, to the poor, the brokenhearted, 
the captives, those who are bound, those are all people who are in trouble, who are broken, who aren't where they wish they would be, who want to be re restored, those whose lives haven't worked out how they hoped. Nobody grows up wishing that they could be poor forever. We wish of something different. No one really wants to be brokenhearted. None of us want to stay there forever. We want our hearts bound. No one chooses or really wants to be a captive slave. We want liberty and freedom. Can't think of many who enjoy being in prison and just wish they could stay there forever. We want out. All of these people wish that they could be restored. They're not experiencing life at all as God designed it. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't have these things in his mind. And so Jesus came to bring good news. And what restoration actually looks like is it restores what was lost. The brokenhearted have their hearts bound. The captives are set free and the prisoners are let out. Things are restored to what they were before. Those who mourn in verse 3, they're given instead of ashes, because that's what you wear when you mourn. You throw sackcloth and ashes over yourself. They're, those are taken away and instead they're given beautiful clothes to wear. There's two ways to view the restoration here because Jesus read this and he said, today, you can read about it in Luke 4, today this scripture has been fulfilled. Well, we can look around and might object and go, well, hey, Jesus, uh, I know some Christians who are poor. One of them is me. I know Christians stuck in captivity in prison. There's still people who are brokenhearted and I'm brokenhearted. I thought you would fulfill this, Jesus. What you, what's going on? Well, partially, this is because the first restoration Jesus proclaims is the spiritual reality of the gospel. That Jesus came not primarily for these physical needs, but for these spiritual needs. And there's a sense that we are all poor in righteousness. We're all stuck in a debt of sin that we can never escape and never pay on our own, no matter how much we get out. We are also broken. That sin has shattered us. We're not heartbroken as in, you know, just weeping over a lost love, but our hearts are not as they should be. We know deep down there is something deformed and wrong with them, that they've been ruined by sin, but Jesus came not just to bind them, but to give us new hearts. We are captives who need liberty. We've been trapped in our sin. No one can escape the power of sin on our own. We are like prisoners Stuck in Alcatraz or in the worst prison you can think of. Or addicts who cannot escape on their own. Uh, you know, I really, I, I love prison escape movies. I think they're fun to watch and see how they plan and dig the tunnel and go, you know, however it is that they do to get out. Well, sin is something we can't ever escape. Sin is something we, we dig a tunnel for 15 years and we finally pop up hoping to find freedom, but we're just in another cell. And we're right back where we started. The only way we escape the prison of sin is through Jesus and the gospel. And when I read this about the prison and he opens those who are bound, I cannot help but think about Jesus setting the captives free in Sheol. We talked about this back in Easter. I won't go super far into it. If you have questions after, you can come find me. But Jesus went to where the Old Testament saints were. When he descended down to the dead, he didn't go down to hell to suffer or let people out of there. He let the Old Testament saints out of Sheol or Abraham's bosom where they were waiting and longing for Jesus to come and to take them up to paradise. And that's where Jesus went and what he does. We are mourners who need to be made glad. We mourn. 
Not just because of what sin has done to the world, because we look on the news and we think, man, Jesus, I, I can't help but mourn. Can't you come fix this? But we mourn as what sin and suffering has done to our own lives, individually as well. We mourn and we long that Jesus would fix it. Yet Jesus restores mourners to praisers to grant those who mourn in Zion, give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of a faint spirit. Jesus does this. He restores our lives through his life, his death, and his resurrection at the empty tomb. What Jesus does spiritually is he restores all of us individually who put our faith in him back to how we should have been as human beings. We were created good in the garden. We weren't created in sin, but we are broken and stuck and trapped. And sin entered that garden, and through Adam and Eve, sin has entered not just our world, but every single human being alive. And we are broken, but God can make us right. Verse 3, he does all of this, he restores, that we may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Jesus came to make us righteous, to get rid of our sin, to give us new life. He restores dead, sin-filled things into living things of righteousness. And Jesus did this at his first coming. What he started spiritually, he will finish physically when he returns again. It's the beautiful and the difficult thing about many of these prophecies of Jesus. We see how he fulfills them in part, and yet we are still waiting for him to fulfill the rest of them. That's why I love thinking of Advent as we think about the coming of Jesus at Christmas. We look back to his first coming and we celebrate, but yet we still long and look forward to his second coming when he will come again. We are between the two appearances of Jesus. And we celebrate and we wait we long and we preach and we proclaim the good news of the gospel that Jesus is a God who restores. And one day when he restores, he will fulfill these promises again. When Jesus returns, there will be no more poor. Poverty will be wiped out. No unexpected bill could ever send you back. When Jesus returns, he'll finish the work on our hearts. He's given us new hearts, hearts that now love him and don't just long after sin, but yet we still sometimes do things that we don't wish to do. We are being sanctified and made more like Jesus, but yet sin is still present in our lives as much as we wish that it wasn't. But when Jesus returns again, our hearts will be made clean once more and sin will be cast out and done. No more will you do something you wish you hadn't done. You will only do the things that bring glory and honor to Jesus, the very things that you want to do and bring you joy. No more heartache. And in the kingdom of Jesus, there's perfect freedom and liberty. Every rule and law is given by Jesus. Not a human government with all of its checks and balances and flaws and elections and ups and downs, but just King Jesus and the wonderful freedom that he gives. Not freedom to do whatever we want, but freedom to do what he wants. And finally, we can do it because he helps us. The gospel is good news. Of restoration. God came to restore sinners to himself. He came to make the broken things of this world and make them right. And this is wonderful news. This is the news that Jesus came to break to tell us that the restoration is here for you if you want it. That anyone who puts their faith and their trust in Jesus will be restored partially now and finally in the last day when he returns again. Jesus is the king of restoration. All we have to do is to come and put our faith in Jesus and it's there for us. 
That's the beauty and the wonder of Christmas is that salvation is here right now in your midst. It is at your fingers. You don't have to do anything. You just have to ask for it and let Jesus give it to you. But we can be afraid of this reality. We wonder if it's really true. We wonder how strong the power of the gospel is. We might wonder how the blood of Jesus, how much can it really wash away? Maybe it can forgive most of my sins, but I don't know about all of it. We might look at our own lives and think maybe this is too much of a job for Jesus. I don't know if he can do it. I can see how Jesus can save other people. I can see how Jesus has restored and transformed other people. I don't know if he can do that for me. Point number two. The truth is that nothing is so ruined that it cannot be restored by Jesus. Nothing is so ruined that it cannot be restored by Jesus. There is not a single soul alive today or who has ever lived before or whoever will live in the future yet that is too far from the grace of God. If it was possible to be so ruined that Jesus couldn't save us, then all of us wouldn't be. Well, that's the reality, because without Jesus, all of us are dead. All of us are ruined. We are stuck in our sins. The Bible doesn't just say, like, well, our sins were pretty bad. We were mostly sick, but, you know, if we just got a little kick in the butt or, you know, a slap on the back or got some good tips, we could figure this out on our own. No, we're dead. We're ruined and devastated. We're beyond fixing. The porcelain dish that's been completely shattered, there's no gluing that back together without it looking tacky and bad. But Jesus came to restore us. No one is too far from his grace. Look at verse 4. There's a lot, in, especially in 4 through 8. We don't have time for all of it. But, but look at verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations, repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. There's different levels of what's going on here. Isaiah is partially speaking about Israel and Jerusalem. And the very real physical restoration that Jesus will bring. But that's not all that God has in mind. He's speaking about so much more. Here, even then, it, the point isn't that, hey, don't worry guys, one day your cities are going to be made new. The point is, hey, everything you see that is ruined, God can fix all of that. God has the power to fix everything. Israel probably thought it was too much. Our nation's in exile. All of our cities are ruined. How would we rebuild the temple? We don't have the plans anymore. We don't have anyone gifted enough to do this. We can't possibly build things back. Things are too far of a wreck to even try. Have you ever seen a mess too big that you just don't even know where to begin? Like you can picture, you know, the house of a hoarder and you go in and think, wow, how am I supposed to clean this? And just, let's just burn this down and try again later because this is, this is too far gone. Or a piece of clothing that it's too messy and too ruined, you just give up. This isn't even worth throwing in the washing machine. It's just going in the trash. We'll buy another. I've done that some with little kids. You, you know, some things, no, I'm just not going to mess with that. Well, that's too ruined. That's how Israel felt. That's how many of us can feel about ourselves. But Jesus says, no, nothing is so ruined that I can't restore it. Nothing is so devastated that it can't be fixed. Jesus builds up the ancient ruins. The devastation of many generations. Many generations. The worst ruins you could imagine. Jesus can restore it. The worst sinners you can picture. Jesus can and does forgive them. The most ruined, messed up life. Jesus can put it back together. 
You are not so ruined that Jesus can't restore you. You're not so far from his grace. He can restore the ruins of generations. Picture the ruins of a city buried miles under the ground where all you have is a couple bricks left. Okay, we're going to rebuild it. How? Jesus can. Jesus restores it all. And it's amazing what Jesus does. He doesn't just put things back the way they were. That would be miracle enough, wouldn't it? To go back to square one, to have a broken thing made just like it was the first day that you got it or unwrapped it from the present or took it home from the store. But Jesus does even more than that. Instead, he gives a double portion. He goes above and beyond verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, you shall rejoice in their lot. In their land, they'll possess a double portion and have everlasting joy. He takes the destroyed things and he makes them even better. He takes the ruined things and he doesn't just make them not ruined. He makes them glorious. Jesus gives the double portion. We understand this typically, biblically, in terms of inheritance. But the inheritance only goes to the firstborn. And not just the firstborn, the firstborn son. That's who gets the double portion. So you got three kids. Well, the first one gets a double portion, and then the other two have to split what's left over. It's not thirds. This tells us is what should only be for the firstborn, what should only be for the highest, which most people reading it wouldn't be. No, it's actually for all of you. Jesus restores and goes above and beyond what they could ever imagine. He takes a ruined house and doesn't just make it a really nice house, he makes it a palace. Takes our devastated lives and he turns them into something beautiful that look like Jesus. He trades shame for blessing. He exchanges dishonor for rejoicing. He takes our sin and doesn't just give us not sin. He takes our sin and doesn't just wipe away the slate and tablu rasa make us clean. He actually makes us righteous. He gives us righteousness. This is the work of restoration. It's not just limited to houses and ruins and cities. It's for lost causes. It's for people that no one wants anything to do with. Yet Jesus comes and restores them. It's for you and me. Verse 8 might seem a little strange. It almost seems out of place. For I, the Lord, love justice and hate robbery, and I'm going to give recompense and covenants. And, man, what is going out of here? It almost looks like, you know, this is the kind of thing that those who don't really love the Bible will say, well, this verse must have been added in later because it just, this is such poor writing, it doesn't make sense. Well, I don't think that's true. Well, why is this here? What does it mean? Let's read it. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Why is God talking about justice and covenants in the middle of all this talk of restoration? Well, he's talking about the covenants and the promises that he made already. He's made promises. He's made promises to restore the world as it would be. He made a promise to Adam and Eve right in the garden that the serpent wouldn't win. The serpent wouldn't have the last word. He promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. He would have more descendants than he could possibly ever imagine. And that the whole world would be blessed because of his faith. He promised David that one day one of his descendants would be a king and would rule the world forever. And that at his rule, righteousness and justice and peace would reign 
through all eternity. He promised Israel he would never forsake them and never give them up, no matter what happened to them. Even if they were sent out and scattered and didn't know where anyone else is, he would gather them all back and rebuild them. Those are the kind of promises that God made. And in this verse, God says he'll be faithful partially because he loves justice. And because he loves justice, he is true to his word. For God to make those promises and not keep them, to go back on them, would be unjust. But he loves justice, and he does. No matter how bad things get, he promises to restore them and to do exactly what he has said. And he will not just keep the old promises, he's going to make another everlasting covenant with us, which we know came through Jesus, who offers us the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus made promises to forgive sinners. Well, how can we receive this restoration? How can our ruined, dead lives be made new? Well, we have to be born again. It's the question that Nicodemus asked Jesus. Right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? You're talking about it. It sounds wonderful, Jesus. I want it. How do I get it? Well, you've got to be born again. Well, okay, I've only done that once, and I didn't really have much of a say in that the first time. So how in the world am I supposed to do this again, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, you can be born again by believing in me. This famous verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That promise is for anyone who believes. The promise of restoration, it's for sinners like you and like me, who put our faith in Jesus, who believe in him and him alone, and he promises to save sinners. He doesn't promise to save those who think they're too good. He doesn't promise to save those who have got it all together, who don't need him. He promises to save those who ask for it, who believe in him. It means you and us, our neighbors, the angry person we hate. It means that none of us are too ruined to be saved. All that we have to do is believe, whosoever, that is open-ended. And our God is a God of justice. He promised to restore any sinner that wants it. This means that God isn't done with you. As believers, we can forget the gospel. We think, okay, I, I did that once as a child, did that years in the past, I'm good. Let's get to the deep stuff. Let's get to the good things. Let's get to, you know, eschatology or something that's a little more important, Pastor. But we can forget that God has restored our lives. He restored us. He brought what was dead and made it new. And sometimes we can forget too because our lives still feel like ruins today. We might think or be tempted to think, well, yeah, I know Jesus is going to let me into heaven, but I think that might be all the help he's going to give me. I'm going to be on my own right here to figure this out. But no, Jesus and God is still not done with us. The king of restoration is still rebuilding ruins and restoring them even today, even in our lives. And slowly... Slowly but surely, through the work of sanctification, as we slowly are being made into the image of God, as we slowly are becoming like Jesus, he is taking the ruins of our life and one brick at a time, making us a little bit more like Jesus. I read a story um, of Justo Martinez. He was a Spanish Trappist monk, and he wanted to build a church. He grew up in Spain, and in the 30s, he was a child during their civil war, and he watched communists burn churches to the ground, and it made a strong impression on him. And so as he got older and became a, a monk, he wanted to rebuild out of the ruins and rubbish that he saw and build a church. 
And so he did this in a strange way. He actually only used ruins and rubbish. He refused to use any new materials, and he started building his church in 1961. He would only use recycled things or junk. A lot of the time it would be junk. Or he would go to other construction sites and dig through the stuff that they didn't want. Find their old bricks, the things that were broken that they had no use for. He used old tires and everyday objects. Others frequently over the years would call it the cathedral of junk because of how it looked. But slowly, over the years and over the decades, it began to take shape. As Justo worked on it, he built it pretty much completely by himself without heavy machinery, built some scaffolds, spent 10 hours a day, one brick at a time, slowly building this church from the ruins. And he died this year at 96. His cathedral is still unfinished, but it's beautiful now. They still call it the Cathedral of Junk, but the work is continuing. And as you look at it, you can go and, and look it up. I'd encourage you, you can see how someone took ruins and created something beautiful at it, slowly, one brick at a time. This is what Jesus is, and God is doing with our lives. He takes our ruins and our stuff, and he slowly is putting us together and making us more like Jesus. And there are moments that people mock it. There are moments that people spit at it. There are moments that people may even say things like, I thought Jesus was doing something in you. If he was, you wouldn't look like this. You'd look much better. Well, God's work of restoration sometimes is slow. One brick at a time. But God is not done with you and you are not so ruined that he will throw you away. And the work will remain unfinished in our lives until we die or until the Lord returns. But in this present moment, our King is still restoring even the worst parts of our lives, brick by brick. Our last point is, well, what's the result of this restoration? Or what should the result of experiencing this transformation be? What does it lead to? Well, it should be a little obvious, but restoration leads to rejoicing. Restoration leads to rejoicing. This is why the best part of those shows, right, is at the end. When the bus drives away, when they pull the pictures apart, when they reveal the curtain or they open up their eyes and they see what's been restored and what happens. They often cry or yell or exclaim. They're excited. There's rejoicing because when you see what something was and now see what it is, that's kind of all that you can do. Seeing broken things put back together. But we can't help but yell out with joy at the beauty of what's before us. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, and my soul shall exude in my God. Right? Will we rejoice? How much rejoicing? A little rejoicing? Maybe a clap? Just one clap, kind of quiet, like a, a golf clap or maybe a tennis clap. Maybe a quiet, you know, amen. How about a good old-fashioned, you know, silent head nod, rejoicing? Maybe a mmm. That kind of rejoicing? No, we should greatly rejoice. Greatly rejoicing. It sounds like a lot of rejoicing to me. Okay? You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to study a lot of Hebrew. You don't need to get a background in Ugaritic to, you know, double-check the, uh, you know, the Septuagint to see what it says. Okay, greatly in Hebrew means the same thing in Hebrew as it does in English. It means a lot. Great. Great rejoicing. Not a little rejoicing, a lot of rejoicing. 
How much rejoicing is that? Well, probably about as least as much rejoicing as our Oklahoma State fans had at that last play at Bedlam. Okay, however you rejoiced then, probably an indicator of how much is great rejoicing and should be the rejoicing that we have, uh, that we should rejoice in being restored by our Savior. It should lead to us, our souls exulting in our God. It should make us continually rejoice and shout out praises. Why do we sing every week as a church? Okay, do we just sing because music is really cool? Do we just sing because it's our favorite songs and as long as they sing my favorite songs, I'm going to sing this week, but if it's not my favorite songs, I'm not going to sing next week. No, we don't sing because we like music. We should be singing because we just want to rejoice in what our God has done. Because we love Him. It's not about us. It's not about Him. It's not about the music, though they're great. It's not about the musicians, though they're wonderful. It's just about our God and He's wonderful. And I just want to sing to Him. I don't care if I don't know the songs. I don't care if I can barely get the words out, if I'm tripping over Him. I just want to rejoice in Jesus. If we really understand what God has done in us, that should be our response. And if our response in worship is anything other than that, then we've forgotten why we're here in the first place. We sing lots of songs every week because there should be lots of rejoicing. All of us should rejoice. Sometimes we rejoice with joy. Sometimes we rejoice with a heavy heart. But yet, we should still rejoice. And why? The rest of verse 10. For he has clothed me with the garments of righteousness. He's covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, we should be rejoicing because our sins have been washed away. He has taken away our sin and he has given us the clothes of righteousness. He has taken what was dead and is now alive. He has taken our broken hearts and he has united them with him. If thinking about your salvation doesn't make you rejoice, then I'm not sure you remember the reality of it and the gravity of what Jesus did for you and for me. Or for all of us. I'm not saying that our whole lives right, should be spent constantly rejoicing and clapping and singing and, and woohooing. Okay, if you know me too, you notice I don't do that all the time. I doubt, and many of us do. So I don't want to, this isn't meant to make us feel bad, but the gospel is such wonderful news. What Jesus has done for us is incredible. It is in, unimaginable. It is worth celebrating. And the way that he restores us, it should make us celebrate. It should make us celebrate often. However it is that it looks for you. I'm not going to be legalistic and tell you it has to, you know, be in clapping and yelling and woohooing. But we should all take time to rejoice what God has done in our lives. We should. However that looks. And what happens when we rejoice, what happens when you rejoice is that other people notice. Okay, people rejoicing, they're usually loud, usually exuberant. It's hard to miss. And what we see is that God's rejoicing. When his people rejoice, it draws the attention of the other nations. The end of verse 11. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. You also notice we need God's help to even praise him correctly. He makes it sprout up in us. And the entire nations are going to hear about this praise. Verse 9. Their offspring shall be known among the nations. So God's people, their descendants in the midst of the peoples, all shall see them and acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. The people should see believers, and they should just know it. They go, oh, I knew you were a Christian. I could just tell. Man, you just looked like Jesus had changed you. I could just see that you were rejoicing and so full of love. that it, our, our praise is actually part of our missions. 
Our worship and our rejoicing is actually part of our evangelism, that we cannot help it, and as we do it, it draws other people towards us, that they just have to find out more. I remember staying in Germany with Brianna's family. Um, we were up late one night, and we were sleeping with the windows open because they don't have air conditioning there because it's so cool, I, I guess, is what they kept telling me. Um, I kept wanting to turn it on anyway. Um, but it was weird. So we got woken up as we're trying to fall asleep, and people were just shouting in the streets. Woke me up, kind of freaked me out for a second, but it was happy shouting. Okay? You can tell the difference between happy shouting and bad shouting. This was happy shouting, which is, okay, what's going on? And then horns start honking, and all of a sudden there is a parade forming. Just driving down by my window as people are yelling out their cars and celebrating. And like, what is happening? I pull up my phone. You go, did I miss something? Like, was there a great world event that happened at this moment? And I couldn't find anything out. Well, as it turned out, this, this parade, this rejoicing went on for several hours. Just sounded like everybody in this small town was just losing their minds with excitement. And so what's the first thing that I did in the morning? Is I got to find out what in the world was that? Well, come to find out, some soccer team from France had won a big tournament. I don't know what that had to do with Germany or so many people in Germany were celebrating, which led to more questions. Well, what is this tournament? Why were you so excited? Are you French? No? Okay, well, what's going on? My interest was tied to their rejoicing. Because their rejoicing was so great, I had to figure this out. If I just heard one person go, Woo, we won! And that was it. I'd be like, well, okay, whatever. And then I'd fall back asleep and I'd forget. And I wouldn't care. But... Their rejoicing was so great that I had to figure out what that was about. That's what our rejoicing should be as well. And really our rejoicing over Jesus, it is our evangelism. It's a witness to the nations. You started parading through the streets, singing out about Jesus. People would ask questions. Maybe some of you, they wouldn't. They'd be like, oh, well, there goes them again. That's, that's figures. It's kind of the weird stuff they do. You might just think you've lost your mind, but people would notice. And I'm not saying that's what we need to do. Okay, we're not organizing that as our next church event. But what I am trying to make a point is that our rejoicing draws people. It draws attention. And that's not why we do it, but it is an offspring of what we do. Because of how much Jesus has changed us, it should lead us to do, we just have to rejoice. And our rejoicing makes people want to know, why are you rejoicing? Man, let me just tell you about Jesus. And there's in some ways that this is what we do every single Sunday. Right, when we gather on Sunday mornings, why do we even gather on Sunday? We gather on Sunday because this is the day of the week that our Lord came back to life. And every week, it was so awesome that we decided to get together every single week and celebrate what Jesus did. What he did for us and what he's still doing on us and what he's going to do. And so for the rest of our lives, we're going to get together on Sundays and celebrate with other believers the work of Jesus. So people go, why are you worshiping on Sunday? Why do you have to go every week? Can you just go every other week? Maybe once a month? Maybe just when it's convenient? Can't you just watch that online? I mean, you know, we just had a pandemic. It's really convenient. You just watch anywhere. Just stay at home in your pajamas. You don't have to watch it on Sunday. You can watch it on Wednesday or Tuesday night or Thursday or that. I'm trying to go on any of that. But the answer is, well, let me tell you why I come every single Sunday. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about why I rejoice. Because what Jesus has done is so wonderful, it should and it must lead to us rejoicing and celebrating his work in our lives and in the world. We have a great chance to practice it today. Not just in the next song and not just as we've already done, but you know, we're going to share a meal together and just rejoice. 
Just laugh and celebrate and enjoy not just each other, but enjoy in the wonderful thing that this church is. And this church is here, and it's, it's not just because we're all great and this is a wonderful social club. It is here because Jesus united us in a way that only God can. And what he has done is worth celebrating. So we're going to celebrate that later. In summary, the, our first point is that the gospel is good news of restoration. second point is that nothing is so ruined that it cannot be restored. last point is that our restoration should lead to rejoicing. So I, I hope, if you haven't been, that you've been restored by Jesus or that you will be restored by Jesus. If you're in this room and you're scared or you think you're too ruined or too far, you're not from God's grace. None of us are. And for the rest of us, let's rejoice. Let's celebrate our Savior and what he's done. I'm going to pray for us, and then our worship team is going to come up, and we're going to raise our voices as one. I don't know what the next song is. I don't know if I'm going to like it or not. But what I know now is I've already decided I'm going to rejoice and celebrate my Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for what you have done in our lives. I thank you that you are a king who restores. Lord, that what your birth means, that we remember and celebrate on Christmas Day and we look forward to now and decorate and, and dress differently, Lord, is because what you, you being born, is such a wonderful, incredible thing. Because you came to restore sinners like me to life. Lord, would you help all of us in this room to put our faith and belief in you, if there are any who don't. And Lord, would you help those of us who have put our faith in you to lift up our voices and to rejoice in how you have saved us and in what you will do. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and rejoice in what our Savior has done. Men, I'm glad our God is faithful forever. Before the benediction, I'm going to go ahead and pray and bless the food um, so we can, after that, we'll set up. And then as soon as the food's out, you can start eating. You don't have to wait for anything. Um, so let's pray for that real quick. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity, um, again, to continue rejoicing, um, God, for your work in us, in the world, and in our church. I pray that you would just bless this food. Lord, thank you for those who, who worked hard to make some together. I pray that this time would just be a wonderful time of fellowship. Um, and rejoicing, enjoying each other, and enjoying your work. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. I read the benediction from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that you, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace.